Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap, a podcast where Jason Mikula and I break down the latest happenings in FinTech and crypto and all other adjacent areas that are of interest to us. This is our, uh, I guess, uh, March um, recording where we're going to look back on the month of February, which has flown by much too quickly. Um, Jason, thank you as always for joining. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. And, you know, before we dive into the um, uh, meat of the outline, I did want to spend just a couple of minutes. Um, obviously, I think everyone in sort of at least my corner of the fintech space has been uh, rightfully preoccupied with everything that's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, you know, I don't really have anything uh, incredibly insightful or intelligent to say, but I did want to just give us a couple of minutes to kind of reflect on um, the situation, uh, sort of how how people in your life have been responding to it, what your feelings on it have been. So would love to just get your uh, impressions on it and uh, just spend a couple of minutes chatting about that before we get into the, the meat of this show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, uh, hard to imagine uh land war in europe in in 2022 uh, i know that you're far away in in bozeman montana and i'm you know reasonably far away here uh in the netherlands but really Still not europe, anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> really not something that uh i ever imagined that uh i would see you know in in my lifetime certainly yeah no absolutely yeah i i feel the same way i mean it's it's funny you summed it up that way because for me that's Kind of my reaction is I I can't believe that in the century we're living in this is still something that's you know possible and you know my hope is that um, everyone else in the world kind of bands together to send a clear message that this is unacceptable behavior and you know again there's lots of different angles to this topic but certainly as I think we've seen covered by some of our friends in this space the uh, expulsions from uh, the SWIFT messaging service and um, the economic sanctions. Certainly there's going to be a financial services component to the response here. And my hope is that that along with many other responses, including, and especially the very brave response by everyone living in the Ukraine, which is just incredible to, to see reported, uh, eventually sends that message and we can hopefully get to a resolution on this. But um, yeah, it's definitely been preoccupying my thoughts as well, even though a uh, lucky to be very, very far away from what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if people are curious to know more about the, you know, uh, dirty details and mechanics of, of SWIFT and sanctioning banks and whatnot, uh, I think Simon Taylor had a yeah. good overview in his newsletter this past week. Uh, and then there's been some great reporting out of uh, the FT and The Economist about the details of how these systems actually work. Uh, it's not you know, an area that I'm particularly an expert in, so I, I don't think we're going to cover that today. Um, but for folks who are curious, there's plenty of resources out there to learn more about what exactly um, various governments are doing and what it might mean in practice for, you know, for Russia and for the impact on you know, not only Russia's economy, but the world's economy. Yep, yep, absolutely. And you know, I will be... Uh, you'll see on my uh, newsletter when I distribute this podcast that um, I will include some links to places people can go to donate money uh, to Ukraine or to relief efforts or to the people of Ukraine. So I'll, I'll definitely include that as well. And I think to the extent that we can all do our part, that's probably the best thing at the moment. So um, with that, uh, Jason, I will jump us over to, um, if not happier topics, then certainly more sort of normal topics. Um, 
we have a number of different ones we wanted to cover, um, including some pretty meaty topics. So I want to get started with one that came across, um, I think, just in the last couple of days, which was um, City announcing that they were going to be jumping on the bandwagon to eliminate uh, overdraft and uh, NSF fees. Jason, can you kind of walk us through the the baseline on this story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the you know big headline here is that City is the latest uh, and largest bank to date to completely uh, eliminate overdraft fees and returned item fees or NSF fees. Um, and on the one hand, you know, City is a top three or top four bank by assets, uh, but it does have a significantly smaller retail footprint than your major three. Uh, mega banks, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Uh, so, in its move to get rid of overdraft and NSF fees, uh, City is giving up something like uh, 70 million or so in overdraft fees uh, that it collected in the first nine months of 2021. That is a small fraction. Uh, of what the largest banks collected in fees in that same time frame. Wells Fargo did something like one billion in overdraft fees. Um, and it is worth noting that the, the three banks I mentioned have already implemented some minor changes uh, to their overdraft policies in response to increasing scrutiny from legislators, regulators, uh, and from actions from, from other banks to sort of minimize or roll back some of these fees. So it's, it's unclear you know, if uh, these banks that have already made some adjustments uh, would sort of feel pressured or follow city's lead to you know make further reductions or if they're going to sort of stand firm where they are yeah i think that's i mean i think you hit the nail on the head that's the part that i'm really curious about going forward i mean i think every time and it's smart right like if you don't make a ton of money on overdraft fees you know getting some good press by just eliminating it altogether is a, a good sort of competitive move in addition to obviously sort of doing a good thing for consumers but i think the the question that um i'm really stuck with is for people who are really dependent on this revenue just how many steps are you going to take to try to you know get the heat off so to speak without uh necessarily fully imperiling that that revenue stream and it's it's hard because I do think one of the things that gets a little missed in the fintech discussion on this topic is that overdraft as a service is something that when it's intentionally used does provide value to consumers. Now, we can have a good, I think, discussion about um, the fee structure and um, sort of how uh, easy it is to continue to overdraft uh, sort of in a multiple times per month or over the course of a short period of time. So there's some product design things that I think need to be discussed, but I, I don't want to get to a point where the ability for uh, lower income consumers to get access to short-term liquidity disappears. I just want to see if we can push the banking industry away from what I've sort of thought of for a long time as like incidental or accidental overdraft, where it's really not strategic on the part of the consumer, uh, but it generates a tremendous amount of revenue for these banks. And I, I don't know, looking at the changes that JP Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo and Bank of America have made, that I think that those changes go quite far enough to cut all of that behavior out or to help consumers avoid some of those um, sort of less necessary overdraft fees? What, what are your thoughts on kind of how far they've gone and how much further maybe they need to go? Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I, I 
certainly share uh, some of your concerns, right? That the the conversation, uh, you know, from regulators, from legislators, from consumer advocates tends to focus on the supply side of these high cost forms of credit, you know, whether it's overdrafts or uh, other types of small dollar lending. Uh, and while on, you know, on its face, it's, you know, quote unquote, good that these overdraft fees are being reduced. And, and I, I do tend to agree with that point of view. Um, you know, it's not fully clear what the second order impacts are going to be. Typically, you know, if you're reducing uh, the revenue that banks are able to generate from these products, it's logical to assume that they're going to constrain the supply of this type of overdraft credit. Uh, and, and to your point of consumers who intentionally or strategically use overdraft um, as short-term liquidity, I was actually looking into this recently, and I think it was like a Pew survey from a couple years back. Uh, showed that something like a quarter of overdrafts uh, were intentional, that consumers knew right. they were going to overdraw their account, but they needed to go put gas in the car or you know buy medicine for their kid or what have you. Uh, mm -hmm. And so as you eliminate or reduce these fees, it's likely that the number of consumers that will have access to overdraft uh, you know, goes down. Now, Will that be replaced with some other type of product structure? It looks like that may be the case. You know, you already have um, Simple Loan from US Bank, uh, which is a small dollar product, which I think has an APR that runs, you know, into the 50s percent APR, but it is structured in a way that is a little bit more uh, transparent, arguably, as far as people knowing what they're getting into upfront, uh, and structured in a way that should be more affordable to repay since it's a fully amortizing installment loan. Uh, Bank of America has introduced a, a similar type of product that I think is like a flat $5 to borrow $500. Uh, and I know that a couple of other major banks are evaluating similar types of either close-ended credit or revolving credit that's attached to a checking account. Um, so hopefully these are products that are designed in a way where for consumers who need to access them, um, they're structured in a way that is uh, a little bit you know, safer uh, in the sense that you, know, you avoid that sort of debt trap that can be associated with you know, racking up a lot of overdrafts very quickly um, and uh, more manageable from a repayment perspective. Uh, as far as the steps that you know, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America have taken. Um, I think it's a good start. <laughs> you know, uh, I think Chase went the furthest as far as increasing its ceiling uh, to $50 before a customer would incur an overdraft fee. And that almost actually starts to look like what Chime offers with its, you know, no fee overdraft. You know, the other changes, eliminating NSFs, uh, and giving a you know a 24-hour grace period for a consumer who's intentionally overdrafting, you know he or she is probably going to be uh, unlikely to resolve that overdraft within a 24-hour period. So I'm, I'm you know I'm not sure how much of a difference some of these changes are going to make in practice. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I, I gave uh, Bank of America a pretty hard time in my newsletter a while back when they announced their change, which is the the balance connect feature that allows you to connect multiple <laughs> Bank of America deposit accounts together. And then it'll automatically detect when you're about to overdraw your account and will automatically transfer money from another one of your accounts, assuming you have one 
uh, to cover the the difference and help you avoid an overdraft fee, which would be $35. But to do that, they charge you $12, uh, I believe, in order to, to get access to that service. So that feels very much like we're not really trying to address the problem. So I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think we're maybe not quite all the way there. Although your point about JP Morgan Chase uh, being making a change that's more um, sort of in line with what other uh, neo banks are offering, I do think that's a good one to think about because um, the uh, time when you know these neo banks were in the market just by themselves trying to uh, get access to um, these different consumers by using this as a wedge product, I, I think that might be going away a bit. I was thinking about it in the context of Capital One, actually, who was offering a, um, you know, now the fee-free overdraft, uh, but still sort of offering it as a full service to their customers. And you know, if you compare the details of what they offer, in a lot of ways, it's actually more useful as a short-term lending product to consumers than what Chime offers. I think the dollar amount mm-hmm is a little bit on the higher end. So if you're really intentionally using it to get access to short-term liquidity, it's better that way. Um, it doesn't just work for your debit card, which is what Chime's product does. It works across mm-hmm. ACH, which is really important for paying rent or paying bills. So I actually think that there's a case to be made that as banks bring these policies into sort of the modern age, some of them might end up with more sort of competitive offerings to what the, the neobanks offer. now. That's not to say that they'll have a marketing advantage in dealing with the neobanks or trying to acquire younger customers. That's, I don't think, going to happen, and they'll still be challenged there. But in terms of the product parity, I think they'll be a lot closer. And the other thing I wanted to mention real quick is that when I was talking about this trend with the chief strategy officer at a large bank, um, one of the things that they brought up was they were actually very happy about this shift away from overdraft because they've done short-term lending, like as a you know standalone product um, for mm-hmm. a while. And you know, their belief is that um, you know, it is possible to work with these customers. It's just you have to be pretty sharp on underwriting and risk-based pricing and sort of all the things that make this kind of a challenging business to operate in. And you know, their belief was that um, there's going to be quite a few banks that sort of back away from making money in this space, but don't sort of backfill into it with really strong underwriting and may end up sort of taking some losses as they adjust to sort of this new market. So I, I do think which banks sort of come out of this with an advantage in the market will be an interesting thing to look at as well. Yeah, I, I think that's completely right. And the, and the point on Capital One is uh, is a good one. I, I incessantly see their uh, commercials when I watch anything on Hulu, uh, even though I don't, even though I don't live in the U.S. Um, and they really seem to be pushing hard at that uh, feature set that that sort of chime popularized the you know two day early direct deposit, uh, you know no fees and you know ability to to overdraw the account. Uh, so, so in that sense, you know, I, I definitely think you're right. And particularly, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, I think Capital One will not be requiring uh, direct deposit into the account to qualify for that ability. Uh, and I've in the past been a little bit critical of some of Chime's marketing uh, in that it's unclear how many of its customers actually qualify and are able to get 
uh, the maximum overdraft that that it's advertising, given that it is uh, dependent on having, you know, quote unquote, qualified direct deposits, which tends to be uh, payroll or government benefits on a specific cadence, such that Chime knows, uh, you know, if we extend you fifty, hundred, two hundred dollars, that they have a good uh, good idea that they're going to be able to get that money back. Uh, so I think, you know, to your point, um, you know, banks, particularly banks with expertise in uh, credit risk management uh, in lower income or subprime segments, which Capital One definitely has, may have a leg up when it comes to offering this type of feature. Yep. Yep. No, I, I completely agree. And actually, that uh, is a nice segue over to our next topic, which is um, some reporting that came out recently about Chime's uh, sort of uh, long rumored, but still not here yet, IPO. Um Originally, I think Forbes had some reporting that uh, Chime was targeting for uh, March for an IPO, somewhere in the 35 to $45 billion range. Um, but as we've seen, uh, especially over the last few months, really the last month in particular, um, we've had a really, really rough uh, public market. Uh, you know, Tech stocks, I think, generally have been uh, very volatile and generally kind of trading down. And then, um, and I think you tweeted out something along these lines, you know, fintech uh, public stocks, particularly ones that IPO'd or SPAC'd in 2021 are just in sort of brutal shape right now, whether you're looking at Money Lion or Dave or uh, any number of the ones that have um, gone public, it's just not going super well. Even some of the ones that are sort of adjacent to fintech, like, you know, Toast that does uh, restaurant. Mm-hmm point of sale uh, systems, but make a lot of their money from uh, payments and from fintech, it's not going great on the public markets right now. And so um, that seemed to be sort of the uh, rationale behind some of the latest reporting that says Chime may delay their IPO, um, perhaps to focus on expanding into additional products, uh, perhaps lending, perhaps investing, um, and just sort of continuing to strengthen out their hand and maybe wait out the sort of pessimism in the public markets a bit till they can get to a point where it's going to be a little little friendlier to go public. Um, I guess my initial reaction to this is that it seems very uh, smart on the part of Chime to, if they can, avoid this. Although I I do wonder about their ability to get a positive reception on the public market, even if they do push this back uh, a bit. I had tweeted a while ago, jokingly, although not everyone took it as a joke, that um, you know companies like Chime and Stripe and others, uh, Klarna, should just stay private forever and should never go public. Now, obviously, they have to at some point for the benefit of their investors and their uh, early employees. But um, you know, I mean, honestly, in this current market. I'm not sure there's a time in the next year that I would be super comfortable jumping in, particularly given that, you know, as has also been reported, Chime has had some challenges with fraud, which I know you and I have uh, definitely spent some time talking and writing about in the past. And, you know, that maybe getting into lending is going to be a significant challenge. So what were your sort of reactions to this, uh, this news about Chime? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The, the reporting out of Forbes, um, you know, claimed that the market turmoil was not the primary consideration. But I mean, if you look at where the market's been in the past, you know, really since the start of the year, um, it doesn't feel like a good time to uh, (laughs) be going public. I mean, I I refreshed my... uh, 
tracker of uh, fintech IPOs and SPACs. And yeah, Moneyline is down 75% since mm. uh, since its SPAC deal, trading at uh, $2.50 a share today. Uh, and Dave is down a bit over 50% uh, as well. And those are you know, arguably the two most comparable companies to Chime in the sense that, um, you know, a good share of their revenue is based on interchange income. So, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's you know, completely irrational for Chime to look at market conditions and say, hey, you know, we don't think we're going to be able to maximize uh, the return for, you know, our shareholders, which is their fiduciary duty. Um, you know, on the other hand, I kind of wonder how, um, its business model will season with, say, another 6, 12, you know, 18 months of data points, right? Mm-hmm. I think part of, um, you know, how the market tends to operate is in these sort of trend or hype cycles. And, you know, the more data Chime has and the more data there is on how public market comps are performing, um, you know, gives public market investors more more information uh, to come up with what you know a reasonable price or a reasonable multiple is and i think some of the potential risks are around things like uh, what happens if you know chimes growth rate slows considerably uh, there's actually been really really little information that chime has put out publicly about things like uh, number of accounts, number of active or transacting accounts, what the average balances are. Um, so, you know, what those numbers look like and what the trends look like could dramatically impact how people sort of value the company. Um, you know, to your point, there's been, you know, a number of reports of challenges with fraud on Chime's platform. Chime is by far, you know, not the only company that has dealt with that over the course of the pandemic, particularly as it relates to things like unemployment benefits, stimulus payments, and PPP loans. So, you know, Chime is not the only one dealing with that, but it's certainly a consideration and one that has caught some headlines recently. Um, and, you know, the the idea of using the time to expand into lending and in, you know, and or investing, which is what the article referred to, you know, it, it it makes sense, but I'm a little skeptical in the sense that Chime's user base skews, you know, low income and presumably, you know, lower credit score. Uh, and so you have to wonder, you know, if you're building an investment product, uh, you know, that typically the revenue from that is often a percent of AUM of assets under management. You know, if Chime users have very little to invest, that that may not be a super large or meaningful new source of revenue. And on the lending side, uh, you know the existing fraud problems, you know, give you reason for some concern. Um, and if the customer base does skew a little bit more subprime, you know, that is a really challenging segment to to underwrite and manage credit risk in. You know, Chime has some uh, potential benefits if it has control of direct deposit and, and can sort of be first in line for repayment, um, but. But by no means is it a, a slam dunk of, you know, they're going to launch lending and that, that's going to power, you know, an order of magnitude increase in, in revenue and profitability. Lending is a, a really hard business. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing I kind of keep coming back to is that, um, you know, on the one hand, to your point about the fraud stuff, you know, they're not the only uh, fintech company that's been struggling with that. And I, I think if you look at other 
companies in the space that are um, sort of comparable to them, you know, some are doing very well, right? Uh, Block just had a really, really good uh, earnings report and their stock is up. And, you know, they Cash App was certainly very much in the center of all of those sort of reported uh, fraud problems, particularly around, uh, you know, the government uh, aid and dispersals of um, additional income to consumers. Like all of the fraud problems have been rampant with Cash App as well. And they're doing just fine and investors are are reacting well to some of the latest numbers they've reported at the same time you know paypal has kind of slid the other direction and they're another example of one that i think it was reported had a massive number of sort of um I can't remember what word they used to describe those accounts, but uh, something- illegitimate, illegitimate accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, illegitimate accounts. So something a little less than uh, than the ideal customer that they're looking for. But I think what that tells us is that there are plenty of other uh, things that public market investors are looking at besides just this fraud problem. There's a, a good way to sort of deal with it and build a strong business. And then there are challenges that go along with it as well. However, I do think your point's a really good one about, you know, lending in particular. I I continue to be uh, sort of struck by uh, the number of fintech companies that are just like, yeah, we're going to get into lending and, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be great. And, you know, I mean, and, and I know that they don't, you know, like to hear from, you know, kind of seasoned bank people sort of, uh, give them a hard time about, you know, their ambitions and lending and, oh, we've heard this from banks before. And, you know, they say it can't be done, but I'm sure we can do it. But like lending is one of those businesses that you just sort of have to take your lumps in and you just have to sort of learn over time how to do it well. And I'm not saying that Chime or any other fintech company can't get into it and do it well. And I think there are lots of uh, people out there who they could hire to help uh, sort of accelerate that learning process. But it's not going to be easy. And um, it's not, to your point, based on their customer base, going to be something where, you know, when you contrast it with someone like SoFi, who is starting with a pretty high income uh, customer base, you know, there's not going to be these just immediate obvious opportunities for uh, really profitable, you know, prime auto lending or mortgage lending or areas where you really can, uh, as a bank, make a lot of money those aren't necessarily going to be, I think, easy places for Chime to start. So I am really curious to see, is it sort of an expansion of what they do around uh, overdraft and short-term lending? Is it buy now, pay later, which I have compared before to overdraft uh, as another type of sort of short-term liquidity, but done through merchant partners? Uh, Is it going to be credit card, which seems a little... I don't know, um, sort of off-brand from the way that they sort of position themselves with consumers, particularly ones who might be a little averse to to debt or the traditional banking system. Obviously, credit cards are very sort of profitable, though, and we've seen a number of other fintech companies get into it. I I guess I'm not totally clear on if I had to like guess, gun to my head, what type of lending Chime might do. I I don't know. I I'm I'm a little unclear as to directionally where they might want to go there. Well, and uh, you know, from a valuation perspective, you know, lending is a capital-intensive business, um, and, and lenders, you know, don't tend to see the kinds of multiples that you know, quote unquote, tech companies uh, see. So, you know, not that it's not, um, you know, an important component of a business like SoFi or Chime or what have you, but if the idea is, you know, we're taking a breather on the IPO because the markets are. Uh, a little rough right now. We're going to add some products. 
uh, and you know intend to IPO at a 35 to 45 billion valuation, it's not clear to me that as a non-bank adding you know adding lending products um, which are you know complex, take a long time to build, take a long time to understand um, you know delinquencies and losses. Uh, it's not clear to me that that is something that immediately like boosts their valuation. Right, right. No, I agree. Well, and I think that on the investing side, you know, I think your point's really well made. And I I wonder about that one because it seems like uh, at a very high level, the sort of two ways you can make money on the investing side are to have a sort of asset under management model where you're focused on sort of helping them build wealth somewhat slowly and in a somewhat diversified fashion, or you have the uh, block... Uh, um, Robin Hood model, Coinbase mm-hmm. model of sort of profit off of volatility and payment for order flow and sort of focus on sort of short-term um, sort of yield chasing. And that's another type of investing. And I have to give, you know, uh, Cash App, um, you know, uh, a bit of a, a slap on the wrist. I mean, I, I tend to find their focus on uh, sort of lower income consumers a little bit at odds, maybe, with sort of how prominent you know buying Bitcoin is in their um, uh, their app. I don't know that those things and even the fractional stock trading go super great together. And I've been impressed with Chime's ability to kind of hold out on just sort of the obvious move, which would be adding cryptocurrency buying into their app. I would think that would do fairly well for them, but I'm not sure it would do especially well for their customers. So I've always sort of been impressed that they've laid off in that particular area. So again, investing is one where I think the formula for their customer base, if you want to make money, is pretty clear, but is maybe somewhat at odds with how best to serve that customer base. And the way to help that customer base, which might be a more sort of diversified, savings-oriented and diversified investing-oriented approach, that one I think is probably the more responsible route to go down. But to your point, I'm not sure that it uh, juices any particular numbers in a way that might be especially helpful for going public. I think that's right. Um, all right, enough on time. <laughs> yes, enough on time. Um, let's, uh, let's jump to the next one. What do you got? Uh, so yeah, also making news recently was SoFi's acquisition of uh, Technicis, which hopefully I'm pronouncing correctly, uh, which you- is... Um, which is a core banking provider. I'm going to go ahead and admit I had not heard of this company. uh, And in in doing some research, it looks like it's uh, a little bit more popular with banks, uh, with operations in uh, Central and South America. I mean, my read on this um, was that it kind of looks like SoFi is assembling the pieces of uh, a fairly decent banking as a service platform. So I'm sure folks will recall that it uh, acquired a bank, Golden Pacific Bank Corp, uh, which closed, I think, late last year. Uh, Galileo, which is a card issuer processor, uh, and now it has its own core banking provider. Um, I was tweeting about this, and somebody did point out that that SoFi is sort of bumping up towards that 10 billion cap, which would make it less attractive uh, as a debit card, you know, program partner. There are other uh, things, you know, that it could be interested in providing, whether it's you know savings accounts uh, as a service, whether it's credit card issuing. Um, 
or you know, lending, which is really its core business. What did you make of this acquisition, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, my reaction was the same, right? I think they, I, I was totally surprised by it. I, like you, I wasn't super familiar with Technosys. I'd heard the name, but I, I didn't really know a ton about what they did. But it seems like they are core banking with sort of a focus already on banking as a service. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think that having a charter, which they now have uh, gotten approval for, and a uh, sort of core banking system that's banking as a service oriented, plus Galileo, which is obviously oriented toward fintechs, I think it puts them in a really potentially interesting position. I think the the thing I'm curious about is to what degree they are going to remain focused on continuing to be a bank uh, and trying to sort of compete directly uh, for uh, consumers. Um, mm-hmm. I... I don't know that I've seen any reported information on sort of how well that's going. I I think that, you know, uh, they've been doing okay on the public markets relative to some of the other companies that we've been talking about. Maybe not great. I think they've been a bit dragged down by the the general pessimism around fintech. But, you know, generally speaking, it seems like it's been going okay. Like we talked about before, they have a, a slightly sort of better base of customers to start with in terms of doing lending and being able to sort of grow profitability. So, I do think it's a little odd that they're sort of doubling and then tripling down on this banking as a service direction. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, I guess, for what that means for their sort of historic business around serving serving consumers directly. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, if if you're looking to the companies that are doing well on the public markets, with with or without justification, um, you know some of the companies that have done well are Upstart, which has this sort of uh, you know lending marketplace type model. Um, it, it's not a bank; it does not hold a charter. Uh, in the banking space, you know companies that have achieved outsize return on equity are uh, these sort of smaller banks that are pursuing uh, the banking as a service model, right? So names like WebBank and Cross River, uh, TAB, Transportation Alliance Bank, MetaBank, um, that you know basically leverage the fact that they have a charter to provide services for other companies. So is it the case that what we're seeing here is you know SoFi sort of looking at in the competitive landscape, what companies are able to achieve sort of outsized returns, looking at what assets it has or what it can acquire, and then trying to build to that. And to your point, um, what are you to make of all of the you know time and money that's been invested in building SoFi's what I'll call direct-to-consumer or consumer-facing business? You know, it it started as student loan refi. Uh, but it now offers pretty much a full stack, including mortgages, a cash management account that functions like a checking account. I'm pretty sure they have crypto, they have equities. Yep. Uh, so clearly, like a considerable amount of resources have been spent building that product stack. Um, and to your point, I haven't uh, revisited it too closely since um, the SPAC deal, which was last year. Uh, and at that time, you know, my read on the investor presentation was basically most of its business is student loan refi uh, and personal lending, and everything else was essentially a rounding error. Um, and trying to tell a story of 
cross-sell, and I feel like we've probably talked about cross-sell many times on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very it's very easy to to say that that's the strategy, but but executing it uh, is is much more difficult, uh, particularly in the segment that SoFi operates in. Right? You know, they might have a best in class slash like least expensive refi option for a certain segment of borrowers who want to refinance student loans. But that audience, that customer segment almost certainly already has a brokerage account, you know, high yield savings account, uh, certainly, you know, checking account, credit cards. And, you know, why are they going to switch or uh, get another one from SoFi if they already have these products somewhere else? Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I haven't seen any specific, you know, announcement or public statement from SoFi that they're sort of intentionally reformulating strategy around banking as a service. But if you look at the pieces of what they've acquired, you know, okay, the charter makes sense uh, as a as a lending business, lowers their cost of funds, improves the economics on their core lending stuff. Uh, but acquiring, you know, acquiring Galileo and now this core banking provider certainly looks like they're putting the pieces together uh, to at least sort of have two business models, one that's direct to consumer and one that is more banking as a service oriented. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's well said. And it'll be interesting to see in the next couple quarters how they uh, try to position that and how they try to rebalance kind of their business moving forward. Because I I do agree, it's an interesting, I guess at this point, hedge against some of the, the larger trends we've been talking around with the uh, public market fintech companies and just sort of the general uh, struggles that some of these companies have been having the bigger that they get. So um, very interesting to keep watching. Jason, we're going to end as we always do with uh, the segment that you rudely ripped off from uh, NPR, which is uh, Can't Let It Go. And uh, I know that uh, most people, I think, have probably moved on from the Super Bowl uh, and aren't thinking about it much anymore. And I know that you don't care about sports, but you deeply care <laughs> about both marketing and uh, all things happening in the crypto space. So the crypto bowl, I know, is something you were paying close attention to. What uh, of any of the ads jumped out to you? What was sort of the general sentiment that you took away from uh, a deluge of commercials? Yeah, you know, I um, watched and rewatched all of the crypto-related commercials, I think at least <laughs> a dozen times uh, while I was sort of writing up uh, a piece on that. You know, obviously, uh, Coinbase attracted the most sort of media, Twitter sphere, uh, fintech commentator attention. There was some drama. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do you mean? Well, there was, did you see the fight that happened on Twitter where um, the CEO of Coinbase basically said that it was an idea that they came up with after they rejected all of the ideas from their ad agencies? And then one of the ad agency CEOs went back at them and said, no, that's not true. We had this idea and you sort of stole it. <laughs> Did you miss that Twitter beef? That was a I, I I did uh, I did not catch that somehow. Uh, you know, it, it always shocks me how combative some of these crypto CEOs can be on Twitter. Oh, um, <laughs> I mean, I think the sort of like narrative is you know Coinbase you know won uh, the crypto bowl advertising contest. Uh, and if you look at some of the the metrics that are that are you know publicly available as far as like you know downloads or I looked at the relative search query interest, that would appear to be the case. 
Um, I mean, my my argument when I put on my like performance marketer hat is, you know, it you know it depends on what the cohort of accounts you've attracted, uh, how that performs over time, right? And specifically because Coinbase. Uh, had some promotions attached to this floating QR code. Namely, I think $15 uh, worth of Bitcoin after your first trade on the platform. And there was also, I think, a $3 million uh, Bitcoin giveaway. Incentivized promotions, uh, as PayPal has learned with its illegitimate accounts, uh, <laughs> tends to attract a lower quality of uh, account uh, in that people are, you know, signing up and just trying to get the promotional bonus, right? Think of the thirty thousand whatever miles giveaway on a credit card, um, and so you know, yeah, they attracted a lot of people downloading the app. Uh, you know, presumably a lot of people who signed up. How that segment performs over time will inform whether or not that campaign was sort of successful from a return on ad spend perspective. Uh, I think you know from the Coinbase is good at advertising, you know, narrative in AdAge or you know TechCrunch or wherever. You know, they seem to have uh, securely won that for at least uh, this Super Bowl. Absolutely, hence the the drama about people taking credit for the idea, as as I guess always <laughs> happens uh, after a good idea takes off. It's less obvious when you're in the drawing room beforehand trying to figure out what to do. Um, no, I think that's right, and I. I will uh, definitely bow to your sort of superior analysis on this. Mine is much more emotional. I, um, as probably people in the audience can guess, wasn't thrilled to be overrun with uh, crypto advertising during the Super Bowl. Um, and, you know, in general, the thing that kind of struck me was just that um, it was interesting how I thought the probably the two biggest categories of ads were crypto and then um, like online sports betting and gambling. Mm. And um, mm. it was really interesting to sort of compare and contrast those two ads because the, you know, online gambling and, and sports betting very much was just like, hey, you should have fun. Like, just go have fun. Like, fun is what we're doing here. And, you know, that's fair. I'm not a particularly big fan of online gambling, but like some people enjoy it. And that's that's totally fair. The thing that continues to kind of bug me about the way crypto is positioning itself, uh, which is, very much, you know, it's fun. It's gambling. That's why you're doing it. That's that's absolutely fine. I don't like how they sort of keep positioning themselves as like the next great breakthrough in human innovation. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I liked I liked the FTX ad with Larry David. It was funny, um, but the sort of subtext of it was that. Um, you know, in the same way that like people laughed at the invention of the wheel or the invention of the printing press or the invention of the internet. You know, crypto is the same thing, and like maybe some of the underlying technology may at some point be seen that way. Perhaps, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of that, but certainly an exchange for just buying cryptocurrencies for the purpose of speculating on the value of cryptocurrencies, that is not the wheel, right? Like that's just, that's just, <laughs> not. and you know, it goes back to the, the crypto.com ad that was rightfully destroyed online uh, by critics with Matt Damon talking about, you know, fortune favors the bold. Like it's not that. Mm -hmm. And the, the less seriously that we can take this stuff, I think the better it'll be, certainly for my blood pressure and maybe just for the industry overall. So that's my quick rant on that particular subject. I uh, I do not uh, disagree with you. There was a lot of uh, FOMO uh, imbued in um, <laughs> more than one of those ads. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, um, that is it. Jason, thank you so much, as always, for taking the time. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, please have a good uh, rest of your day. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.